Hey guys, before we get to the episode, got a few sponsors for you today. Um, this episode is sponsored by Trello Bits again, the leading security firm in the blockchain space. Outside of blockchain, they also have deep expertise in reverse engineering, cryptography, virtualization, malware, and software exploits. Outside of their consulting offerings, they have also released high-quality open-source tooling for smart contract security analysis. Listen to our last episode to learn about one of their call- products called Slither, uh, which checks Solidity code for vulnerabilities. This episode, we'd like to tell you something about something different they offer in the community, security meetups. At least once a year, over the past two years, they've held the Empire Hacking Security Conference in New York. Uh, last year is it December 12th, the year before that, December 12th. They've brought over 150 attendees to learn about the pitfalls of smart contract security and blockchain infrastructure. I personally attended this past one, and I can attest to the quality of the speakers and the content. I plan to continue going every time they offer it. I really enjoyed it. All talks of the previous one and, the, and uh, all talks of every one of them they've had have been recorded and can be found on the Trail of Bits blog at blog.trailofbits.com and in the show notes of this episode. There you'll find Trail of Bits own Jocelyn Feist discuss contract upgrade risks and recommendations, Zcash Foundation's Ian Myers discuss failures on on-chain privacy, and Clover's Patrick and Amber discuss how hard it is to make something secure and usable at the same time. Uh, there's much more there, so go to the blog, check them out, and uh, gear up to go to the next one. You'll probably see me there. Today's episode is also brought to you by GiveCrypto.io. GiveCrypto's creator, Troy Norcross, who also runs a blockchain education agency uh, known as Blockchain Rookies, saw that uh, just giving crypto peeps the ability to spread the joy of owning coins is kind of difficult. It's hard work to explain what Bitcoin is and have people create their first wallet, receive their first transaction, and get going. This is why he created Give Crypto. It's the easiest way to share crypto with anyone, your coworker, your brother, even your grandma. With Give Crypto, you can send coins via email to the recipient. It asks for an email address, which is stored just long enough to send a voucher, which can be redeemed for Bitcoin, uh, with other coins being added in the near future. No registration or accounts are required. Their recipient can use any wallet to receive their, uh, their currency, but if they do not have one, Give Crypto will guide them through the education process to acquire and secure their wallet, bringing them into the exciting world of cryptocurrency. Spread the excitement of owning cryptocurrency to your friends and loved ones today by visiting givecrypto.io and click on the big Give Crypto Now button. You can also click the Get a Wallet button to uh, be stepped through the process of creating your first Bitcoin wallet and starting the path of becoming an owner of Bitcoin. There are some terms and conditions with the service. You must already have Bitcoin to use the service. There's no credit cards and this is not an exchange. There's a max of 0.01 Bitcoin for any voucher. Vouchers expire after six months if not redeemed and Give Crypto does take a transaction fee of 0.00024 Bitcoin to cover their operations. The service is new and seeking feedback, so reach them at info at givecrypto.io and let them know what you think. You can reach Troy on Twitter at Troy underscore Norcross. That's T-R-O-Y underscore N-O-R-C-R-O-S-S. And Blockchain Rookies at I Get Blockchain. That's I G E T. B-L-O-C-K-C-H-A-I-N. Enjoy the show. Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, 
a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 41 of Hashing It Out. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty. And with me, my trusty co-host, Colin Couchet. Say hello, everybody, Colin. Hello, everybody, Colin. And our guest today is somebody I've followed for quite a long time. I've always appreciated the work that he's done. It's Harry from MyCrypto. You, you dig into a lot of scams, figure out where they come from, try and... Um, you spend a lot of time trying to keep people from screwing themselves over. Uh, my crypto has done a lot of work in that space. So why don't you give us a quick introduction as to like how you got here, how you got introduced into blockchain, how you joined my crypto and, and the kind of stuff you work on regularly. Yeah. Okay. So um, before I got into crypto, I was a uh, PHP developer for um, an e-commerce platform. Um, then I, I started getting interested in Ethereum and decentralized applications. And around that time, I started seeing loads of scams and phishing and people every day saying, oh, I lost, I lost all this money. Um, and there wasn't anything really around to help prevent people from losing all their money apart from education material. So I built a browser extension called Ether Address Lookup that uh, primarily kind of pivoted to become a domain domain blacklist and redirect people away from uh, bad known domains and keep their funds secure. Uh, then it just grew and I joined my crypto and that's and now we're here today. <laughs> so I actually is interesting to me. So when you say I joined my crypto, did they bring you on specifically for that project you built? Um, is my crypto taking some of the responsibility of the security uh, into their hands? Yeah. What's your role uh, there? That, um, that product uh, got me um, kind of in their radar. Uh, they were my Ether wallet at the time, uh, and they were one of the biggest targets. So I was monitoring tons of my Ether wallet phishing kits and everything. And then Taylor picked me up and I joined my crypto. Um, and now I'm very heavily focused on security side there. I'd say that, um, I guess I've always thought or said or talked to Taylor about the fact that my crypto became security conscious uh, by the mere fact that during the ICO boom, they became the main funnel for people to actually participate in these ICOs. And, and by that, they became the main thing that people tried to copy slash fish slash hack slash try and steer users in, into other things. And so because they were the largest attack surface or most successful attack surface for getting people's funds, they then had to, like, they were forced to take on a strong security stance. And that, you know, through that hiring you to try and uh, figure out how people are doing things and mitigate them. Can you talk a little bit about that experience going through um, that whole hype and, and what y'all did to try and to help users from 
uh, not being fished, being more cautious and things like that? Yeah. Uh, so one of the, the, the main points that we did was uh, we got rid of private keys on the web because private keys, uh, people didn't realize that with your private key, you have control of your entire address. Um, and uh, last year, fake airdrop sites were pretty large and they were asking for private keys. So we took the stance of, okay, if you're using our products now, you, you can't use a private key on the web. You, you can on the desktop app, which is offline. Um, so we're trying to educate people that uh, your secrets should stay offline. Um, and we're trying to mitigate the issue of people sharing their secrets online by, by, by not allowing them to. Um, and what, what was the other part of the question? Ah, just like kind of like what you're trying to do to, to keep people from, from shooting themselves in the foot. Because I think as we all know, like the more broad or easy this stuff gets to use, people come into the space with the intuitions that they have with uh, like traditional, traditional like web experience. Like for instance, I was, I was on ramping my mom to status because I work for status and I wanted her to use it to just tell me like, what problem she was having. And she was basically the worst case scenario for um, a security engineer. Like she was, she's asked me, asked her what her password was, or she needs to enter her password. She's like, well, I don't know my password. Where's the forgot password button? I was like, oh, those don't exist in crypto. I had to kind of walk her through those types of things. And then she's like, she took a picture of her 12 word seed and put it on her phone because so she could remember it. And all these different types of things that people typically do um, when using traditional web apps don't work here. And by, taking steps like removing the ability for people to even enter a private key into your website, you're slowly taking away those convenience factors or those things they think are okay. Uh, so that later on down the line, if everyone follows suit, then people will realize that that's just not something you do. So when a hacker tries it, people aren't used to doing it on, on, a, web, on a website like MyCrypto and they just do it without thinking about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as well as getting rid of private keys on the web, we write education, educational and, and investigative pieces on Medium about all kinds of different scams and phishing kits, uh, targeting different brands in the ecosystem to try and educate people to be extra cautious when going places. Um, they've been they've been pretty successful in terms of reach. So hopefully, it's made an impact in at least one person. How do you, can you explain a few of those? Like, uh, give us an example of one that you've recently done. Uh, one that I recently did was uh, a malicious Chrome extension, um, which was actually a copy of a successful Chrome extension that blocked crypto mining or crypto jacking um, from 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 being taken place. Um, it looked like it it was doing its job. Uh, in fact, it was doing its job. It was blocking crypto jacking, but it also it also um, uh, sniffed all of your networks, network requests on my Ether wallet and blockchain and got rid of the cause properties so it could inject malicious JavaScript into the legitimate my Ether wallet domain and blockchain to steal your secrets in the background. <laughs> How do you how do you find this? What do you how do you go about trying to find this type of stuff? I mean, is it is it is a end user just screwed um, to 
mitigate themselves against these things until people like you find them? Or is there something they can do? Like, how do you go well, about finding these here, things? Here's a question I think is kind of foundational for what you about, about, about what you just asked, Corey. It's like, when you're looking for these things, what are the categories of features? What are the categories of threat models that you're looking, what are you looking for specifically first? Like, how do you actually, what are, how are the, how are these attacks defined? And, um, you know, what, what are, what are the types of attacks that are, you are kind of monitoring with this system? And then of course, once you know what types of attacks there are, I think then it gets kind of leads into your question, Corey, of like, how do you, you know, find these particular types of attacks? Uh, so, um, it used to be, we could just find everything with Google ads and we would, we would just stumble upon them or they'd be reported to us. Uh, but w with this Chrome extension, that was kind of uh, on accident, and I found it on a forum. I think it was Bitcoin Talk. Uh, someone said, "Hey, this this uh, download this Chrome extension because it blocks crypto jacking." And I thought about implementing crypto jacking into or anti crypto jacking into Ether Address Lookup. So I wanted to look at their code, and then I thought. Well, they've got some suspicious looking code in here <laughs> uh, and and then it kind of went on from there um but apart from that it is kind of more of a community effort than 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 me being lucky all the time i have like uh tons of telegram groups that i'm in i monitor forums and ever and kind of make it frictionless for users to report suspicious things and i try and investigate them all that you just do you just you're basically the anti-troll you're just trolling the internet looking for things to stop other trolls that are trolling the internet from doing yeah yeah pretty much i don't feel um, like there's a lot of people like you <laughs> like, like there should be more people like you but i just don't feel like there are right now yeah i mean it's pretty time consuming but it's pretty rewarding when once you once you get site down and people confirm it's down and they're like oh it doesn't work anymore so that that's like at least one person saved um from losing their crypto and then with the i write a medium article um about the big ones and push them and so i take it down and try and educate people about the kind of different attack vectors around so uh, i'd like you to maybe Take a step back from your experience doing this for a long time and think about how things have changed over time since you've gotten to crypto in terms of the types of things people are trying to do. In your opinion, as time has gone on, has it gotten worse or have people slowly evolved in terms of changing the way they do things based on us successfully mitigating the previous things they used to do? And kind of, yeah, if, if that's the case, can you can you kind of outline that timeline and how that worked? Yeah, it, it's more of the, uh, the 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 second lane you you described. Um, they've got more, they've got more clever into tricking people, and it's not just cloning an open source blockchain interface and adding some malicious code in it and doing Google Ads to get to get the targets. Um, they kind of pivoting a lot to social engineering. Um, like last year, we had big cases of people uh, simjacking by hiring support agents in version and AT&T to 
quickly get numbers ported, um, which just didn't exist when I first entered the space, at least from my experience. Maybe it did for, but it wasn't highly reported. Yeah, funny. Somebody, somebody I worked for actually got hit by that, uh, or something similar to that. Actually, I think they walked into the store with a fake ID, pretended they were them, and uh, got their stuff by basically switching the number over, and then used the uh, used that number to uh, retrieve the security codes for certain crypto accounts that they had, and then uh, hacked into those accounts and tried to steal it. But fortunately, they got up at five a.m., noticed the change, and blocked it before it actually happened but it caused a major freak out on that guy's part yeah um but what what's kind of um maybe great about that is we got to educate people that hey your your phone number tying your phone number to security is is a bad idea you should use like a one-time password thing like google authenticator something where if they steal your phone number they can't get access to your email and then pivot and get access to your blockchain passwords and whatever. I can't, I can't count the number of times I've been emailed or contacted from friends or uh, friends of friends and family members that um, something was stolen or their account was hijacked. And it's usually through either a bad password on their email or SIM jacking. Yeah. And once they have those two, once they have one of those two things, they basically have everything. If people want, like, I think people don't understand how much stuff goes through their email in terms of uh, account recovery or so on and so forth. I'm kind of curious, like, uh, do you think that this technology will eventually teach people to have better security um, by forcing them to have better security practices because it's fundamentally different? You have to take responsibility for your private keys and passwords. Or do you think we're going to just kind of cater to the whims of the traditional intuition of making it so user-friendly that the end user can't fuck up? Um, I hope it helps people or educate people into um, being that, like buffing up their own security, but not in a way that they only learn by losing money because that's a shame. Um, I think maybe we need more education to highlight the the weak points in the chain as in you could have the most strongest password on say your coinbase account but then your email account is is not that strong it's a reused password from 2009 or whatever already in dumps and they wouldn't attack your coinbase account they attack your email and then pivot and recover email or recover password that way to get into your coinbase account um, I, 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 I hope that people learn to buff up their security, but I hope they do that by not lo losing money. Well, I look at the type of people getting hit by these attacks and a lot of them are very tech savvy. These are people who should know better a lot of the times. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not always them, of course, but like a surprising number of people who should know better. And so what I'm ultimately leaning towards myself to answer your question and on my behalf, Corey, is that the only way is to make it dead simple. And eventually we will find that best practice that works. But right now we're kind of still exploring. And so people are getting hit in the process. Um, you know, it's the wild west still. And so, I mean, I really feel like eventually it's just going to have to be dead simple. Otherwise there will not be adoption. Um, that is a major barrier 
um, you know, we're, we're going around talking about how we're going to, we're going to take on the banks and like, why do you need banks? If you've got, you know, all your assets, you know, all your savings stored in a crypto, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that's not practical right now. And a lot of the reason it's not practical is because there's no mechanism for protecting yourself. And that's what a bank is. It's a vault that protects your money. And we consider the idea that, that the, the crypto, you know, the, the blockchain world is protected because, oh, you would need to get my private key. But clearly there are ways that people can get your private key because you are a vulnerable human being and you don't have hours and hours and hours to spend on making sure that your security is in check and in line. It needs to be stupidly simple for you to do so. And that might require a third party, you know, semi-centralized service, or it might not. But right now, um, you know, we are definitely at, a, at an area where security is in a very important role in a very important research area, not just from the, 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 um, the cryptographic side, the more math heavy side, the development side, but also just from the user experience side of how do I keep my, my shit safe without, without, you know, spending a lot of effort doing so. And how can we build repeatable processes that any decentralized application, any blockchain application, any wallet can use and still the user can with low minimal effort, you know, maintain best security practices. Um, it's a tough problem. And I think that's a really interesting area of research. So, you know, I think the first step in this is identifying a taxonomy of, a, of threats, a threat model, like a, a series of threat models where people are attacking. And for that, that's where you really come in, Harry, and I'm excited for your research. And I do consider it research because when you go out and you identify these things, you're creating a, a list of things that can go wrong. And that's what we need in order to make sure we create a model that is threat secure. It is, you know, uh, that it can be resistant to these kinds of attacks. And so, um, yeah, I, I hope you're like categorizing this data because that's going to be super important going forward. And, and I think it would be very beneficial to the community to have that kind of information just around. Yeah. So, so actually, it's interesting to me. So a lot of the things you said kind of relate to previous work that I've done um, before I got into crypto, way before. So like in 2008, 2012, I was working uh, with the tier one wireless carriers, uh, took the company international. Uh, I built the entire procedure process architecture for um, premium SMS scamming. And that led into a whole slew of other areas. And it sounds to me like a lot of the models of, of attack that you're talking about were the same kind of things that we were seeing there, um, you know, uh, the just the phishing scams, the 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 bad advertisements, um, that kind of stuff, and finding that data and recording it is not not trivial. So, um, what kind of processes have you put in place to funnel that information in and report it accurately and I think one other important aspect that I had from that experience is that you can't just willy-nilly say that somebody's scamming. You have to have evidence. You have to be very hundred percent sure that what you're doing, what you're saying about these people, is correct. So, what kind of evidence trails are you taking into account? Are you what are the auditing processes behind these security uh, threats that are getting reported to you? And like, how do you make sure you're not blacklisting somebody that probably shouldn't be blacklisted? 
Yeah, that is a good question. Um, so it depends on the type of scam or or phishing campaign that's going on or being reported. Um, we have uh, one of our main report channels is EtherScanDB, where a user gets a form and then their journey changes depending on if they were scammed or fish or if they're reporting an address or a domain. Uh, if they're reporting a domain, then I can uh, check the domain for any fingerprints of known phishing campaigns. Uh, then if it doesn't match, I can I, I go and va um, manually verify. Uh, we then have bots to archive uh, and take screenshots of all of the server data and the web page itself. Um, and then some of that data is then fed to Twitter and the front end of EtherScanDB plus some other places as well. So what does that fingerprint look like? Because fingerprinting that kind of data is not trivial either. Like how, how do you know whether or not it's, it's the same guys? If they're, uh, all their addresses are anonymized. So like they've got a, you've got some way of matching them up. Uh, what is that? Uh, so for, for example, my ether wallet is still heavily targeted, but there's only maybe two or three different, different phishing kits that are deployed. So we have hashes of the, of the JavaScript files and that they very rarely change. That they very rarely change, but yes. when they do change, is there some way to kind of even match them up even further? Um, probably yes, but, uh, if they do change and the hash doesn't come back, then I manually verify. Oof, yeah. That, and that's, that can get tough because what you've just done is broadcast the world, the, the way to get around your system. Um, all they got to do is iterate their JavaScript file by a little bit, and then they've just caused you a ton of work. So True. there's this, uh, framework that was made popular in the traditional security community a while ago called the pyramid of pain. Have you ever heard of this? I have not. Okay. So the pyramid of pain, I'll, I'll put a link to one of the, um, I guess the, 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 the seminal images that shows what it is, is this, uh, pyramid of specific things that you can find and um, to like to find scams. So at the bottom of the pyramid is hash values as you go up. This is for traditional uh, internet security, hash values, then IP addresses, then domain names, uh, things like that. So like fingerprints you would find when searching for certain vulnerabilities or threats or, or, or evidence of a scam. And um, on, like on the outside of this pyramid, you have the difficulty in which it is the attacker to change to mitigate um, getting past your, your mitigation. So say you find a hash value or a fingerprint of these particular JavaScript files, it's trivial for them to change the JavaScript file, like, like Colin was just saying, and keep doing the same thing. So you're not stopping them very much. They're not having to change much in order to continue doing the same types of things they're doing. And as you move up the pyramid and you can block certain things, say if you can block an IP address, it's still easy to get around, but it's it's more difficult than changing the JavaScript file and getting around mitigating certain hash values and domain names and network host artifacts, tools. And at the very, very top of this pyramid is TTPs or like basically um, behaviors, right? The types of things, like the broad category of a type of attack, maybe phishing would be a certain type of thing. And this is incredibly tough for a hacker or would-be scammer to get around because they have to change their behavior uh, and not just a, not just a tool set, but a whole broad category of tool sets. And I've been trying to come up with the um, same thing 
the same pyramid of pain, but for crypto, because it's slightly different in terms of the types of things people can use and do in this space as it is for traditional internet security. And uh, I think it's it's a useful model to try and uh, try and figure out and map to this because the the better we can do to keep would be hackers and scammers um, to to change their behavior by us fixing our systems, the more or less likely they're willing to like do something. Because at the end of the day, a hacker's lazy. They're going to use the um, easiest thing to do to get the most widespread. Uh, result. They want to be as efficient as possible because they're lazy. And the better you can protect yourself by making them change their behavior, the less likely they're willing to come after you. And I think we're still really, really early in this phase. Well, you call lazy, I call efficient. Time is money, man. Time is money. But like That's why you see like, you know, people on Twitter just saying a bunch of stuff and then, you know, send me five F and I'll send you one back by entering this contest and people do it. Otherwise they wouldn't keep doing it. And it's a really easy way for people to do it because there's a lot of ignorance and, and, and that's hard, that's hard to get around because the moment you block an account, they make a new one. And so that would be relatively low in the pyramid of pain. I'm trying to make this mental mapping of like, what can we do to block a whole wide category of things or what even are those categories? So we can start thinking about blocking them. Well, you know what I think? I think the fact that we're using smart contracts for a lot of these transfers helps because they're a lot harder to change than a JavaScript file and there's a cost associated with it. And, you know, getting the, just kind of like a, a model of, of what the code does, it could be a better indicator than, or even what code base they're using for it. I mean, it could be a better indicator, but then again, there's generic libraries for this kind of stuff too. So I don't know if that would work either. I don't know. It's a tough problem. Do you have any thoughts towards the like pyramid of pain in terms of like you know what like what would be the the, the top of uh, things we can mitigate to get people to change their behavior, get hackers to change, to have to force them to change their behavior? Um, I, I work closely with the guys at Fishport, and we talk uh, a lot about how we can. Um, automatically detect uh, a bad actor um, with minimal uh, false positives. And they are they are building, have built um, machine learning algorithm to detect stuff like that. Um, but back to your question, uh, I think education um, and telling and educating people enough to keep their secrets offline is is at least step one um and that will help that will make the bad actors change from maybe from fishing for secrets and uh getting users to do something else to to steal their their funds that's definitely the case i've 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 wrote a few things in, in the past about um how like one of the main broad sweeping differences in this technology versus, I guess, the internet is that um, by decentralizing all the data and, and I guess, getting rid of the castle, you have no castle to protect. And so you, you, you're forcing all of the responsibility onto the end user. And by doing that, they're responsible for all of their security, which means they need that education to make good decisions. And we can't do that 
until they're educated. So there, there can be no massive adoption until there's education on how to properly manage your own secrets. Sure. Yeah. But then there's also that old saying, you can take a horse to the river, but you can't make it drink. We could have all of the finest education material around, but if people are too lazy to adopt it or read it, then then there's no point. Um, yeah. That's, that's kind so, of the beauty of it, the fact that like this is money inherently in some way, shape or form and has value associated with it. And when you have that elevated risk associated with losing it, then the people are more willing to learn something because they're less willing to lose it. You'd think yeah. that, but then there's a parody hack. Nah, well, I mean, we're also <laughs> learning how to do things at the same time, right? They knew better. I mean, they already knew. I don't know. Like edu education can't be it because we as we as product developers have to um, make our products in such a way that uh, the right decision should be intuitive. It can't it can't be so difficult for a user to make the right decision because we've designed it so that it doesn't make any sense. Like how how do you how do you bridge the gap between a new user who has no concept or intuition of how to handle themselves appropriately? into a new app that helps them intuit the right decision when going when walking through it. Yeah. Um I think I think the, the well the first stage is educating people that secrets should stay offline. Um I know I've said that like maybe a hundred times already. Well, it's it's it's, uh, it's probably <laughs> one of the most important things. <laughs> yeah. And then and then having interfaces with uh inline security. So I know we're revising um model on my crypto so it's not like a big text dump when you first enter the site uh, you get security tips that relate to the action that you're currently doing so you don't have to remember that the the the, the big model at the beginning after you, after you've decided what you want to do and i think if more products adopt the idea of no private keys online and inline security tips uh then then, then we'll make a dent, maybe not a, not a huge one, but at least a dent in the amount of victims. Then you have people and, like Justin Sun doing the exact same thing we've been trying to mitigate against and getting a tremendous amount of Twitter followers because of it. Yeah, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't happy when I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> Especially by crypto, because y'all had done so much work to try and get people to stop clicking on. Twitter giveaways uh, because the majority of them are scams. And then he does that. Granted, it was also, a, it wasn't necessarily a scam, but it certainly wasn't true. Yeah. Still waiting on my Tesla. <laughs> so what gets you, what, what, Harry, what gets you excited? Like I, you're, you've been in the space for a while. You spend all of your time probably being depressed by staring at what hackers are doing to try and steal people's money. And and sometimes relieved when you save some people from doing it, but like you get excited about certain things that are going on that either make your job easier or mitigate part of your job entirely. Um, I get excited about ideas on um, making things easier for for users to identify if something is real or not. Uh, for example, ENS. I no user is going to remember that long hex string. Uh, like a, a, a like um, a human readable domain name or ENS name is I want to see that widely adopted um, but 
back to the fishers, what gets me excited is their ingenious ways to go undetected. Um, like that, that crane extension that I mentioned earlier that hijack the headers and overrate the cause value to then inject malicious JavaScript from um, a malicious domain. That was that was like Christmas to me. That was like, wow, this this is actually pretty cool. But you know, not cool. <laughs> it's kind of weird how like you have you you have this slight like appreciation when people get extra clever to do a hack or or, or some type of you know. Uh, scam or mitigation to, to take people's shit is that like it's like wow I didn't I've never thought about it before and it, it it plays on this weird cat and mouse game that pen testers typically have of um, trying to like you have you have the attacker on one side trying to become more and more and more clever using new and new newer tools to and put things together in new ways that never been done before to get around the ever chasing people like you trying to stop them and I think that's a that's a that's a world that's like a cat and mouse game that a lot of people don't even know exists, and you almost feel guilty when you when you find something and you're like, like, like you said, it's like Christmas when you're like, holy shit, I did this is awesome, but fuck this guy. Yeah, yeah, and then there's also the other end of the spectrum when you come across uh, a scammer that has like misconfigured Apache and is displaying its directory index and has a zip file of the phishing kit. And you're like, well, this guy is maybe stealing tens of thousands and he's just, he can't um, configure Apache correctly. And now I've got his kit and I can see what exactly what he was doing. Yeah, you did a, you did a long blog post <laughs> a while back that like detailed this in like yeah. quite a bit of detail. Can you, can you kind of go into that a bit? Yeah, uh, so Jeremiah O'Connor, who uh, was at Cisco, uh, he forwarded me a domain that was hosting subdomains of uh, to, to, to fish Binance logins. Um, and so I decided to go to the root domain and I found tons of different PHP scripts that either the bad actor used to compromise the, the server or, or they just had it randomly there. And it allowed me to zip any archive, zip any directory on the server and then unzip it into the current web directory. So I did that and then I found a web shell. Uh, and then I exploited the web shell on the Binance kit. And I managed to zip up the entire server, download it and get access to Binance phishing kits, Gmail phishing kits. Uh, I think Yahoo was there and some other ones. And I could see exactly what they were doing and what information they needed. And excuse me. <clears throat> and also because I had I had the entire server which was running cPanel, uh, I had access to all of the emails that were sent and received. So I had access to every single email that went to the fisher with all of the user details. So I could just forward them to Binance and say, Hey, gotta look at these accounts because they've been fished, here's the evidence. So that leads me to a question that's kind of been lingering in my mind in this conversation. What responsibility do you have to, rep to report this to enforcement agencies? Are you working with them? Do you like, hey, we found this phishing guy. Do you, do you report this to, obviously report it to the individual corporations, but some of this is literal theft and fraud on an international level. 
Like, do you feel as though this is something that you could get benefit from cooperating with uh, Interpol or something like that? Yeah, um, to some extent I do. But so if, if someone comes to me personally and says, hey, I've been fished, we'll, um, we'll then audit all of their accounts and see, see, see where the compromise was and then open police reports and work with them that way. But in regards of phishing kits on exchanges, um, right now I forward the exchange all of the information and say, if you need any more information, email me back or whatever, feel free to share this with law enforcement. Um, so I've kind of taken a backseat on working with law enforcement with the, with the exchange phishing kits and giving everything to the exchange to work with. Based on your experience, what do you, what do you see you see most actively being attacked? Is it exchanges? Is it end users through social media campaigns? Is it like, it, is it is it waxing and waning depending on the current market? Like, how, how do you feel the ecosystem is most vulnerable? Uh, so it, it changes pretty much every month. Uh, for example, last year, quarter three, quarter four, were those trust trading kits where it was send me one ETH, I'll send you 10 back. Uh, this year, uh, quarter one has mainly just been people trying to set up fake Binance Launchpad for IE initial exchange offerings and they're phishing funds that way. Those are the ones that are coming out, out this year. Um, so yeah, it was like my ETH wallet kits and uh, exchange phishing kits to get logins, trust trading, and now IEO platforms. Do you feel, based on like what you what you typically see, that uh, like certain things that get somewhat hyped in the media are actually relatively either overhyped or or almost non-existent? Like, say, for instance, physical attacks on hardware devices. Yes. Some like you can you can maybe do some some power analysis attacks on a on a treasure, but the odds of that happening versus you being hijacked, fished or hijacked on logging on your exchange are so drastically higher. You probably shouldn't worry about it. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say uh, maybe shouldn't worry about it as a thing, but keep in the back of your mind that it could be a thing if you become high profile or if you if you actually shop on. Uh, like a secondhand website, like maybe eBay and not get it from the direct vendor. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, maybe the media should focus more on the, uh, more on the uh, attacks that are attacking more, more people than just one individual. Because to, to inject into the shipping line of a hardware wallet is like, pretty top notch, but deploying a fake exchange is trivial. So that kind of leads me to wonder what is the bigger threat here? Somebody using personal bad security practices by storing private keys in their email versus, which means somebody have to directly target them specifically in order to, to get their private keys and even know what to do with it after that. Or phishing scams. I mean, like it sounds to me like those are the the bigger the bigger threat to the you know the ecosystem in general. Is that an accurate assessment? 
Yeah, I I would say yes, but also if you have a guy that's on Twitter saying, "Hey, I've got 250k in Bitcoin," uh, and another guy that doesn't broadcast how much he has, the the guy that's broadcasting his his net worth in Bitcoin, what exchanges he uses, is is going to be a target to a different group. Um, but yeah, to answer your question directly, uh, fishing kits of exchanges targeting the mass is is what we should be more worried about because individual security is up to it's up to them if they broadcast how much they have what what exchanges they use i wouldn't recommend doing that but loads of i don't want to call them influencers but influencers do that <laughs> yeah so about uh... giving names, like can you can you talk about some high profile people who might have gotten hit by some things that you've caught well uh last year we had the ian bolina case where he stored his keys in Evernote. And he was only a target because he, he he looked like he had money and he said he had money and he did have money. So people basically hacked his Evernote account and found his keys and took it Yeah, over. that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that was over one, one million worth, one million US dollars I worth. Was, I think that was the case. I remember, he was, he was uh, I guess, somewhat of a, of a topic within our Slack community uh, discussing whether or not what he was saying was worthwhile, whether or not people like him are good for the community, bad for the community, so on and so forth. But I remember that happening and being like, why would you spend so much time telling so many people how much money you have and how you use it? I feel like that type of behavior is asking for it. Yeah, why don't you just paint a bullseye on your chest? Yeah, but but doing that and broadcasting how much money he's making brings in more followers and then more, uh, maybe the word isn't commission, but commission for him for saying, I'm going into this coin. Not that maybe he wasn't running a pump and dump group, but I know people on Twitter that do that. Mm -hmm. They broadcast, hey, I made five Bitcoin today, join my group. Yeah, if you broadcast how much money you're making, then people from all over the world will think it's true and join your group and then you get more money that way from your followers. But let's turn this conversation a bit towards, uh, I guess, the other direction and talk about some some best practices that people should have uh, when entering the space and like, the, you know, definitely what not to do it's because I feel like you have a pretty good scope of that. You've said basically keep your private keys offline as much as possible a few times. So that's probably your number one. Do you have any other typical advice people should be following? That's like, a, you know, you know, top 10 things you shouldn't be doing in crypto. Uh, yeah. Okay. So storing your secrets offline, private keys, mnemonic phrases, whatever. Um, if you are a high target or you feel yourself as a high target, don't broadcast when you'll be away from the internet to react to a security incident. Like, don't broadcast, hey, I'm just going on a 12-hour plane journey, meaning, hey, I won't have internet access to respond to any security incident for 12 hours. Come at me, hackers. <laughs> don't do that. Uh, use a password manager. Store your password manager backups offline. Don't use cloud storage for secrets. Um, the the uh that that's pretty much the top five i think that was five so uh, you basically are running an audit process 
um, which is a, a, a particular field I'm kind of familiar with. And that process has a flow. So you have the initial interception or discovery, which uh, we talked about earlier with your funnel for how you get your data so that you can actually do your examinations. But it's something we haven't really talked about a lot. And remember, our audience are mostly engineers like us. So what I want to know is, what is your analysis process? What is your audit? How do you actually conduct an audit on a particular thing um, a little more? What tools are you using internally to to do these uh, analysis and reporting? Um, what what? How do you track these people down? Um, aside from just fingerprinting their JavaScript, like there has to be some sort of crypto crypto tools as well that you're using. Uh, so what what are your what does your internal to, internal tool set look like? Uh, so so it's some when we identify if something um, or if we get a report that something is is bad, usually they're verified. Um, very easily, but um, we have um, a there, there's a Python script called Punter, which uh, is um, open source intelligence, which grabs uh, tons of information about the host without touching the host. Uh, we run that uh, every midnight on every every domain that we have, and then we archive that. And so we have a list of IPs that have hosted bad bad domains, so we can periodically check those. Um, I don't tend to look at uh, smart contract phishing as in honeypots, but there is someone on who comments pretty much every day on Etherscan, I forgot his name, about, about um, contract phishing. Um, yeah, m mainly I'm interested in bad addresses and phishing kits on domains and trying to link the two and then building a graph of where the money goes. I know that graph has got to be pretty interesting. Uh, what kind of a relationships have you discovered as a result of this? Are the, is there a kingpin behind some of these groups? And uh, what, what is what what is this cabal of nefarious That's pictures look put like? on our speculation hats. <laughs> uh, so usually there are sometimes not usually, sometimes they would go through decentralized exchanges and exchange out to other coins just to make the tower a bit longer. Um, and sometimes they would swap into Monero um, and then swap back in, or maybe saying swap back into Ethereum or Bitcoin is me being um, tinfoil because I can't prove it, but uh, definitely going into Monero or privacy coins. Not that there's anything wrong with privacy coins, but they do that to hide their tracks. Uh, I've, I've also seen high-profile attacks have coins just sitting there and then being broadcasted on um, <clears throat> darknet forums to sell at, say, 30% value of that wallet value. So they, they, they're they not interested in maybe laundering the stolen funds, but selling them at a very discount price on the darknet to then get their small payout or relatively small payout compared to what they stole. That's interesting. So they're using Monero to launder for better, I, I, you know, I don't know why I didn't even think of that earlier, like as a use case of Monero, I probably should have, but oh, as yeah. a laundering device, like Monero. <laughs> oh yeah. Device. 
But we talked to Loki Network uh, not that long ago last year, um, and uh, one of the things they mentioned is that Monero is actually not 100% um, safe. And since you've got this whole list of domains and IP addresses, which are being maintained by people who conduct phishing or, or uh, hacking scams or whatever, um, what, what Monero doesn't protect against is your ability to see where the network traffic is coming from. And so that's what Loki is actually trying to solve, um, and, which causes another problem apparently, which is that it blocks off that area of detection. But um, what, could you perhaps monitor the Monero network for incoming transactions and map them to the addresses that you are monitoring and the IP addresses associated with them and see if you can find any correlation between the Monero trades and the people who are actually conducting the scams? Um, maybe. I, I actually haven't looked too much into Monero to see if it's possible or what I'd have to do to do that. But in the early days, um, they were going through certain services to swap into Monero, uh, which had APIs so you could see um, the address that, that the Ether or the Bitcoin or whatever came from and the address that it went to in Monero and the timestamp. Um, but they, they, they maybe sometimes still use those, but I'm not seeing them as much as I used to. But yeah, back to your question, I haven't looked too much into Monero to see, see what I'd have to do to do that, but that's a very good point. Yeah, I might have some people I can hook you up with to talk to about that. Uh, one, one guy we're trying to get on, Brandon Goodell from, uh, uh is one of the Monero researchers. I should probably, uh, I should see if, uh, you and him should connect up because this is this is actually something that would actually be a barrier to Monero. Like they want privacy, but at the same time, the downside of privacy is that it it it, it prevents it, it really does open up like this laundering stuff. And so well, I that's, don't know. That's going to be the case with any use. any generalized tool, right? Any neutral tool that gives one yeah. person privacy will also give the other people privacy. That then mitigates some of the tools that we use to look for hackers and scams. And I think that's that's been an argument for like a lot of things. I mean, people say, you know, Bitcoin helps fund terrorists and shit like that, right? And it's the same, it's the same argument. It will continue to be the same argument. And I don't I don't think it it means we should stop uh, work towards creating those things because ultimately like privacy is good for a certain amount of people, but by by enabling it for them in a permissionless way, you're always going to do it for everyone else too. You can't, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. And but I, the thing is, is like people who are doing Bitcoin trading aren't opting into Monero privacy model, right? So like if you're trading Bitcoin or Ethereum or Litecoin, you're not opting in to having your money, money laundered, right? And so to me, there just seems like there's got, I don't know. I know that that's not, that's not the most, valid like you know um like uh uh argument to make at this point but you kind of see where i'm going from an emotional standpoint i guess it's not the logical yeah, standpoint. yeah it fucking sucks it, it makes our jobs I harder into monero existing i didn't say i wanted that level of privacy and yet and yet i'm susceptible to a new form of attack because this exists and i feel like because there's things where you can actually monitor monero traffic it might behoove us to utilize them I like the argument, but 
I think you can make the same argument um, and counter it effectively by saying uh, US dollars are also used in laundering and we use US dollars. Yeah, okay, we can run in circles here, I think. Yeah, but at the same time, there's my US dollars and I have them. The problem is with this shit, like, you know, like I'm not, my US dollars, are, I don't care if somebody's laundering with Bitcoin. I don't care if somebody's bought with Litecoin. When somebody steals from me, I want to be able to track down my US dollars. When somebody steals from me in Bitcoin, I don't want it going into this super, super, super crazy anonymous system. You know, uh, if that's not the security model I opted into, that said, like, there's nothing I can think of right now to stop it. But it to me, it's just like, ah, fuck. Dude, we 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 spend time talking about zero knowledge snarks and privacy technology constantly. When you when you use that type of technology, people are going to build systems that enhance the privacy model to make it to where everything is obfuscated and you can't know anything about it. And consequences of that will be people who do nefarious shit will be able to use it and do it better. And that's just a consequence, but also you enable a tremendous amount of other great things. It's, there's there's no getting around that the technology that is being created the better cryptography that's be, that's being created is going to enable a lot of nefarious things it's also going to enable a lot of really cool things and that's it, it it may on one hand make it very difficult for people like harry to do his job and other security researchers but it's also going to enable a lot of things that are very worthwhile and and should be done and you are preaching to the choir on that. You know I'm on that side as well. It's just a, a sudden emotional knee-jerk reaction when I realized... <laughs> Fuck that, that guy. Something that hadn't dawned on me before is that just the existence of Monero causes a problem in the ecosystem. Because I was all like, yay, Monero. And now I'm like, oh, man, actually, that's that's definitely can be a bad thing. Well, there's I, also that the other aspect that it's, it's, I think when you when things get sufficiently complex... Um, the people who are going to use it, uh, who can use it successfully and efficiently are getting, are getting into smaller and smaller and smaller groups. And that means that people like, uh, the guy who couldn't set up an Apache server correctly are going to be more prevalent, which means that the people who really understand the technology are going to be able to catch them better because they're going to be more likely to make a mistake. And I feel like that's going to be where all of this goes is finding the mistake that someone will inevitably make because the number of people who can successfully do it properly is going to be very small. At least I hope. I don't know, Harry. What do you think? I I, I would I would hope the same as you as well. They would be small. But um, circling back onto the Monero thing, if someone steals your Bitcoin, they don't steal your Bitcoin and it becomes magically Monero. They need to go right. through a service. To then get into Monero, and that's where, if if we have some type of thing that helps us see on the on the on the swapping level who it is, or or at least where it's coming from, which we which we do. But if it if it goes away, then there's an issue. But if it stays or improves, then we can. Yeah, I don't think it's as much of an as much as much of an issue, although. Going into Monero it does it, it does help and launder, but um, this year we're seeing exchanges, at least from my experience, coming more together to help with um, them stop to stop laundering as effectively. 
Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of collaboration with companies like Chainalysis and Elliptic uh, with exchanges yeah. to, and, that are that are like spending a lot of detail and resources uh, making those types of like social graphs along with transaction analysis. Well, I mean, the problem to me is like it's it's not on the ingestion side; it's on the withdrawal side. You know, if you withdraw your money from Monero and people don't know it's withdrawing into your other Bitcoin account, which then you change into you know, um, you change it to fiat and then go buy a Lambo with it. Like, you know what I mean? Like these are, that's, that's the actual issues on the withdrawal side. Um, now you could catch people on the ingest side, maybe, but if they are able to get past that, then it's going on the withdrawal side. And then it's just like, where did you get your money from? Eh, made some money on Monero marketplace. Well, how'd you make your money? Gifts. Like, what are you going to say? Like, <laughs> like, right. Like how, like, <laughs> it's like I found a hard drive in a, in a dump in a dumpster. What I'm ultimately seeing here is that we want this idea that we're going to be able to solve a lot of society's problems with with crypto, but I think it's actually still up to society to handle how its citizens behave. And I'm not calling for, you know, I'm not calling for more laws. I'm calling for different laws. And you know, if somebody magically magically buys a Lamborghini in fiat. Um, right now, you know, the IRS will go, where the fuck did you get the money for that? Um, but with crypto, it's a little more difficult. Um, fortunately we have the benefit that society is built such that you still need to convert to fiat. But if that goes away, like there needs to be some sort of way, whatever we use to buy stuff with can't be as anonymized as Monero or private as Monero. Certainly going to be an interesting society if it is. Yeah, that would be, that'd be very anarchy, man. <laughs> Some people want that. I'm not necessarily saying I do, but I know people who do. Well, but then maybe it falls back on the vendors to prove yeah. your identity to pay with such privacy. Yeah. Or a privacy coin. Yeah. And, and see, that's a great way to pivot the conversation. Uh, use responsibility as the person who's actually ingesting the money if you put the owner's responsibility on them to verify that the money came from a legitimate audit trail then things like monero might not be as valid anymore for for that kind of stuff like how do you legitimize a monero audit trail well you can't by design okay well then i can't give you this lamborghini um and and that's a great see that's brilliant that's a great way to just like, i don't know if i see that happening but yes that would be great well, I mean, there could be third-party services which do this on your behalf, but yeah. you don't, you, and that's a whole other business model. Like, like you know, making better jobs is part of part of the ethos of what we're doing here. That would be a better job. That's a whole other business model. Validating that the money you're taking in through crypto is on the up and up is something people are already starting to do, and doing that on a consumer level would be, uh, or business to you know, B to C level would be a really interesting business model, and. I see that as being a potential solution for these kind of problems that we're talking about. I mean, you can deny a transaction just because you can't prove that the transaction source was on the up and up. Cool. Done. Okay. Well, next time get better coins, find somebody else, <laughs> like, you know, find a private seller. Uh, no, I just think that's interesting. Society will manufacture the solution is I think a very, very valid way to look at this. Um, but yeah. So, so what, what would help? Go ahead. Harry, I, I, I want to I want to start wrapping this up, and I and I and I want to say that the space of um, 
the cleverness of hackers is getting larger. The amount of people who are trying to scam, I would also say is getting larger because the tool sets are being more easily, more available, or the technology is being more approachable and available to, to, to everyday people. And the access in which you have to taking people's cryptocurrency is easier because it's it's 100% digital and vulnerabilities in computers aren't getting smaller. So that means that we need more people like you. How can someone who's listening get started into doing these things? What can they what can they do to help? How can we make more of you? Um, how can we make more security researchers in in the space? Is yeah. that the question? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think having companies become proactive in security on their own platforms to start with is great. As in, uh, as in them themselves are saying that they are responsible for their brand, uh, which we don't see enough of. We see some of it, but, but not enough of, um, and I think people, um, uh, I don't know. I, I just enjoy, I, I enjoy doing it. So I don't know how I can sell the enjoyment to other people but <laughs> i think uh having having companies stepping up their their security is is a great way as in the the the, the brands behind the products that people are using okay and how can people get a hold of uh my crypto learn more uh start kind of dipping their toes this is your chance um, to shill everything you want to shill uh mycrypto.com or twitter.com slash mycrypto these would be the best places. All right. I think, thanks, Barry, for coming on the show. Colin, you have something else? Yeah. Who are you? What's your Twitter handle? How can people reach you? And do you oh. want them to? <laughs> I'm, hang out? I'm Harry. I hang out on the internet on Twitter. My handle is S-N-I-K-O underscore. Cool. And when somebody finds a scam and they want to report it to you, where do they go? They go to etherscamdb.info. And there's a report section in the top right, or they can ping me on Twitter or Facebook, however they know me. Like any any avenue you can contact me, I'll take the report. Fantastic. I want it as frictionless as possible for people to report. Fantastic. Fantastic. And also, uh, what can somebody do if they are the victim of a scam? They can start by opening a IC3 crime report, which goes directly to the FBI, and opening a local police report, then depending on the value that's lost, it might be wise to get a private investigator um, to investigate. Most of most private investigators won't start without the police reports being opened. Okie dokie. That's, that's a good good way to go thank you thank you very much harry thanks and uh for those of you listening if you enjoyed this click the like button share it on twitter uh, you can find us at hashing it out pod on twitter i'm at core petty c-o-r-p-e-t-t-y on twitter colin is at colin Couchet. and tell all your friends hit the subscribe button do all the things see you later thanks guys <laughs>